VOA, the science edition of Press Conference USA. Here's your host, Rick Pantaleo. Welcome to the science edition of Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. I'm Rick Pantaleo. Throughout its 31 years of service, the NASA ESA Hubble Space Telescope has helped make numerous astronomical discoveries and provided breathtaking and superior quality images of cosmic objects that were never before seen in such detail. Information gathered by the Hubble has provided scientists with incredible new insights into the universe. In other words, the Hubble has been a real game changer when it comes to making astronomical observations. December 18th will begin yet another chapter in the exploration of the cosmos when the James Webb Space Telescope is scheduled to be launched from a space center in South America's French Guiana. The James Webb Space Telescope, also called the JWST or Webb Space Telescope, is equipped with a much larger mirror than Hubble. It also has a suite of state-of-the-art instruments and is said to be 100 times more powerful. Because of this, the new space telescope will be able to see much further into the early universe. According to NASA, the JWST will be able to see what the universe looked like around a quarter of a billion or possibly back to 100 million years after the Big Bang, when the first stars and galaxies started to form. The Webb Telescope is an international collaboration between NASA, the European Space Agency, or ESA, and the Canadian Space Agency, or CSA. Today, we'll get a preview of the new James Webb Space Telescope. My guest who joins us via Microsoft Teams is Dr. Eric Smith, Ph.D. He is the program scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope Program at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. Dr. Smith, what is the James Webb Space Telescope? Now, it is a general purpose observatory, meaning that it can do things all across fields of astronomy, but it was designed specifically to look very deep into the universe to try to find the first stars and galaxies that formed after the Big Bang. Of course, if you can see all the way to the uh, edge of the universe, so to speak, you can see everything in between. And so not only will it look at these early stars and galaxies, but it will see how galaxies evolved over time. It will look at forming stars within our own galaxy. It will look at exoplanets, those planets that orbit around other stars. And scientists will even use it to look in their backyard, so to speak, by studying objects in our own solar system. Can you tell us a little bit, please, about the Space Telescope's namesake? Yes. The telescope is named after James Webb, who was the second administrator for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA. He was the architect behind the Apollo program that took humans to the moon, but he was also responsible for keeping NASA science in the forefront. When the agency was started, some felt that it should just concentrate on putting people on the moon, and Webb recognized that to do that, he needed to have bright scientists and engineers who were motivated by their research, too. And so that's why we still have science at NASA. Now, we've heard the James Webb Telescope being used as a replacement for the Hubble. Is it actually replacing the Hubble? So will the Hubble be shut down once JWST is in operation? 
that's a, a common misconception. Turns out Hubble is going strong after 31 years of operating in space. And we sometimes call uh, James Webb Space Telescope, or I'll just say Webb, we sometimes call Webb the scientific successor to Hubble. It's not meant to be a replacement because they each have different capabilities. And because Hubble has lasted so long and is still operating, we'll now actually be able to use both of those telescopes at the same time, giving us a very powerful combination uh, of different ways to look at the universe. Eric, how is the Webb telescope better than the Hubble? It's better in the sense that anytime you have a telescope, usually the bigger mirror means you have a better telescope, just because mirrors are what we use to collect light. And so a bigger mirror means you can collect more light, see fainter things. So the diameter of the Hubble Space Telescope primary mirror is 2.4 meters, and the diameter of the Webb Telescope primary mirror is 6.5 meters. So it's a factor of seven larger in area. That larger area gives us an advantage for looking at very faint things. We also look in a slightly different part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Hubble sees the same light that our eyes do, visible light. It sees a little bit into the ultraviolet, a little bluer than we can see, and a little bit into the infrared, a little redder than we can see. But Webb is designed to be optimized for the infrared. So Webb's vision starts at the very reddest light we can see and goes farther into the infrared. Now, infrared radiation is heat. So if you will, Webb is seeing heat radiation from objects. And it allows us to see things with slightly different eyes than Hubble's visible eyes. Why was it optimized for infrared? It was optimized for infrared for that first science goal I alluded to, which was looking for the very first stars and galaxies. And so this is a little bit of a story. If I can take you back in time to the mid-1990s, uh, right after Hubble got repaired, it's 1993, and the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute then, he made a bold challenge. He said, what if I pointed Hubble at a piece of the sky where, where there was nothing. It was just a black patch of sky. Maybe there were, you know, five or six stars in it, but it was mostly just blank. And if I stared with Hubble at this, what would I see? This became one of Hubble's most famous images. Uh, it was called the Hubble Deep Field. And what was before a black patch of sky was found to be filled with thousands of distant galaxies. Now, one of the things they were looking for in these distant galaxies was, was any of these galaxies a first galaxy? Was it the first thing to form after the Big Bang? And they found it wasn't. So that means they needed a bigger telescope to collect light from fainter objects. But because the universe is expanding, the light from these distant objects gets stretched by the expansion of the universe. And when you stretch light, you make its wavelength longer. And so that light from these very first objects is gonna be getting to us as infrared radiation. So Hubble couldn't see these things because they were too faint for its smaller mirror, and they were showing up mainly in the infrared where Hubble wasn't sensitive. So that's why we built Webb to be bigger and infrared optimized to see these early objects in the universe.
Let's talk a little bit about the uh, specific wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum. There are a number of space telescopes in the sky right now. I looked it up and I couldn't believe how many there were. And many of them have specific observational wavelengths, such as visible light through X-ray and gamma rays. Why are we observing from so many different wavelengths? Uh, that's a great question. And uh, it all has to do with needing to study different physical phenomena. So the universe has a, a whole array of objects to look at. There are stars, there are clouds of gas, there are exploding stars, there are black holes that are eating material that swirl around it. And each of these different phenomena put out most of their energy in different wavelengths. So let's start with uh, exploding stars. They emit a tremendous amount of energy all across the electromagnetic spectrum, but they also emit a lot of their energy at the highest energies or the shortest wavelengths. And so if you want to learn about what's going on in those objects, you need to study the X-rays and gamma rays that they emit. If you come down in the energy spectrum or you get longer in the wavelength, you come to the ultraviolet radiation, which is often in very hot young stars. They emit ultraviolet radiation. And so to study these stars, it's best to look where they emit most of their energy. Stars like the sun emit invisible. And so that's how we're used to seeing the universe. And then if you keep going in longer wavelengths, you get infrared, like Webb, where you can study cooler objects. You can look through dust with infrared radiation, that dust blocks radiation with shorter wavelengths. And if you keep getting to longer wavelengths, you get to millimeter radiation and then eventually radio radiation. And each of these different wavelengths lets you study a different phenomenon in the universe. And we pick them because these different phenomenon emit most of their energy at certain wavelengths. Let's get back to the development and building of the James Webb Space Telescope. I understand it was originally scheduled for launch in 2007. Why has it been delayed for 14 years? When the program was first proposed, uh, and the date you alluded to there was for the first thoughts of what people wanted for Webb. And that was a telescope that was only four meters in diameter, and it had a single science instrument. And early studies uh, by the scientific community uh, made us realize that we needed actually a bigger mirror than that to reach these faint objects. And we needed to have probably more than just a single instrument, a single camera. And so as we began to study the concepts, the size of the instrument grew. And with that growth, we soon came to a telescope that was too big to fit inside a rocket, meaning we now had to have a system that deployed uh, more or less unfolded in space. And it was this increase in complexity and that uh, all the engineering work that had to go on to invent the technologies associated with it that ended up taking longer than initially forecast. But because it takes a while to incorporate them into a space mission, when they launch, they're always the best thing we have that can go into space. 
I see that the Space Telescope Science Institute has been the science operations center for the Hubble. Will they be involved with the JWST as well? Yes, like their role on Hubble, they will also be the science operations center for Webb, meaning that uh, it's two space telescope people will send in their proposals and they will arrange for peer review of these proposals and selection and so manage the science program but in a very different role than they have on Hubble, people at Space Telescope Science Institute will actually fly the James Webb Space Telescope. Hubble is controlled at the nearby uh, Goddard Space Flight Center, which is about uh, maybe a half an hour's drive away from Space Telescope. But at Space Telescope, there is actually a mission control room where they send commands up to Webb to point it and uh, begin taking data. So that's a new role for them. I can only imagine the excitement building there right now. Yes, they're, they're very excited and uh, they've done a lot of rehearsals for various different scenarios that uh, one might have as they go through what's called the commissioning period. Uh, so there's a launch, which is of course really exciting. And then for Webb, there's a long six month commissioning period afterwards. And this is the period where they uh, more or less exercise the capabilities of the telescope. Of course it unfolds and then they begin testing the cameras and spectrographs. And so they've been practicing this and they're getting uh, quite good at it now. They've practiced a lot and they've had to do this all during the COVID environment as well. So they've had to learn how to work remotely in some cases to do this same work that you might've done with everybody all in the same room before. So uh, they're ready to go. Can you tell us a little bit about the launch, Eric? How will JWST get into space? Webb will ride to space on top of an Ariane 5 rocket launch from Kourou uh, in French Guiana on the uh, northeast coast of South America. Webb is an international mission, so it's NASA partnering with the European Space Agency and Canadian Space Agency. Each of those agencies have given us hardware contributions to the telescope itself in the form of science instruments, but ESA, European Space Agency, also provided a rocket. And so uh, we are riding ESA's most capable rocket into space. Let's take a break now. This is the science edition of Press Conference USA. I'd like to remind you that Press Conference USA is available for free download from our website, voanews.com slash PCUSA, and from many streaming services such as Apple Podcasts. We also hope you'll get in touch with us through either Facebook at VOA Current Affairs or at Facebook and Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA. You can also send us an email to PCUSA at VOANews.com. Today, we're getting a preview of the new NASA ESA CSA James Webb Space Telescope that will be launched in December. My guest joining me via Microsoft Teams is Dr. Eric Smith, Ph.D. He is the program scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope program at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. Eric Let's lead our second segment with a very fundamental question. There are a number of space telescopes in operation right now. Can you explain the advantages of space telescopes versus ground-based? Yes, this was a key recognition that uh, astronomers had actually in about the middle of the last century. They knew that if you could 
take your telescope into space, you could do things that you couldn't on the ground. And, and I'll give you a couple examples. If anyone goes out at the night sky and you look up at a star uh, and you stare at it intently, you'll notice that it twinkles a little bit. Everyone is familiar with this phenomenon, even a little poem that goes with it. Well, this twinkling comes from the fact that light from that star is going through our atmosphere and our atmosphere is warm and it's turbulent. And so the little rays of light that are coming through, you can imagine them getting jostled around. And so they never quite stay in the same place on your eye. And so you see this twinkling. You'd see the same thing if you looked with a telescope. If you take a telescope up into space, there's no atmosphere to introduce this, I'll call it an aberration. You don't see any of this twinkling. The star becomes just a single point of light. So taking a telescope into space gives you this very undisturbed view of the universe. Hubble Space Telescope sits about 547 kilometers above Earth's surface and makes about 15 orbits per day. Where will the Webb Telescope be placed and why? So we're going for a long ride when we uh, launch into space. We are going to be 1.5 million kilometers from Earth. Why go so far away? Well, we talked about Webb being an infrared telescope, meaning that it looks for heat. If you were to put Webb close to Earth, well, the Earth itself is room temperature, so it's pretty hot for an infrared source. So if we move away from the Earth, we can keep uh, our science instruments and the mirror colder, and therefore they can, it reduces the infrared background. And so we wanna be far from infrared sources like the Earth and the moon. And so that's why we're one and a half million kilometers away and not just close by like Hubble. Eric, I understand that the Webb telescope will be placed at the L2 Lagrange point. Can you please explain Lagrange points and specifically the importance of L2? Yes. So uh, Lagrange points are named after a French mathematician who Pierre Lagrange discovered them. And there are five such points, L L1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, in any two-body system. And by that, I mean two bodies that orbit around one another. So we are going to what we call the Sun-Earth L2 point. So this is the second Lagrange point in the system that's composed of just the sun and the earth. So as the earth rotates around the sun, if you drew a line from the sun through the earth, uh, beyond the earth for 1.5 million kilometers, that's where L2 is. So it follows the earth around its orbit around the sun. L1 on that same line between the sun and the earth, L1 is a point between the sun and the earth. So at L2, the gravitational pull from both of the bodies, the sun and the earth, balances somewhat. And so by putting an object in an orbit around L2, we don't actually sit at one spot at L2. That means we don't have to use very much energy, very much fuel to stay there. And so it's a way to conserve your fuel, stay far away from the infrared heat of the Earth and Moon, yet stay close enough to the Earth that communication is still relatively easy. 
One of the uh, primary components of any telescope is the mirror system. And I understand JWST's primary mirror is made up of 18 bright gold, 1.32 meter hexagonal shaped segments. Tell us about the design and makeup of this primary mirror. How did it come out that it had to be done in 18 segments? When we were first studying the mirror, there were a couple of different designs we explored. One is the one we ended up with today, uh, hexagons in a hexagonal configuration. Another was almost, uh, imagine a circular mirror where you slice it up kind of like a pizza and have the petals or slices fold up or down. It was found that by making the pieces in the shape of a hexagon, that was done for ease of manufacturing. It was easy to replicate that sort of structure and put a good optical surface on it, polish it really finely. And hexagons also pack very efficiently. So you can make a nice compact mirror with small gaps when you fill it with hexagonal shapes. And although the mirrors are coated with gold, most of the mirror is actually made of beryllium. So that's a very light element. And even though these mirrors are big, they're not that heavy. And the actual amount of gold on them is only, it's only about a thousand atoms thick on the surface. If you were to sweep up all the mass of gold on the James Webb Space Telescope, it would be about the same mass uh, as a golf ball. Many people, Eric, and I'm sure you remember this as well, will remember when the Hubble was first turned on back in 1990, operators discovered that the observatory's primary mirror had an irregularity that affected the clarity of its early images. I remember people saying the Hubble was nearsighted. The error was made when the mirrors were made. I take it that NASA has made sure that this didn't happen with the JWST. Yeah, that was one of the lessons learned that we uh, made sure we took care of up front, and, and we did it in two ways. One of the problems with uh, the way Hubble was tested was that it was uh, manufactured and tested in using the same facilities. And so if you had a problem with the facilities, then that just propagates through. So we manufactured the mirrors for Webb in one place and tested them in a very different place to eliminate that problem. But importantly, uh, because our mirror is in segments, it's by design adjustable. On each of those 18 segments, we have seven little what we call actuators, imagine them like pistons, that we can move these mirrors around, tip and tilt them, move them in left and right, up and down, and also change their shape a little bit by pushing on the center. So once we go into space, we know that we will adjust the mirrors to make it a perfect shape. So we tested it differently and we also built some adjustability into the system so that we can correct it once it's up in space. Eric, we've been talking a lot about the mirrors on the James Webb Space Telescope. What are some of the other significant instruments that are aboard the Space Telescope and what do they do? Can you give us a brief overview? This is a great opportunity to talk about other space agencies' contribution to the mission as well. So there's four science instruments that we have on the telescope. The one that most people will probably see data from is called the near-infrared camera. We'll, we'll call it NIRCAM, and that was built in the United States. Dr. Marsha Riki from the University of Arizona is the leader for that. 
The main instrument that is coming to us from the European Space Agency is called the Near Infrared Spectrograph. And a spectrograph is an instrument that takes the light coming from an object in space and it splits it up into a rainbow, if you will. And we use spectra to study what objects in space are made of and how they are moving in space. So that's a very important instrument for us to learn about the physics of what's going on. So that's the near-infrared spectrograph. Another instrument that is coming half from Europe and half from the United States, we call it the mid-infrared instrument, or MIRI. And it looks at the longest wavelengths that Webb will look at. And it was built by a consortium of universities in Europe and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in the United States. And the final instrument, it's actually a kind of a hybrid, it's a dual purpose instrument, comes to us from the Canadian Space Agency. And it has what we call the near-infrared imager and slitless spectrograph. So it's both a camera and a spectrograph combined. That's the science part. But the other really important part of that is called the fine guidance sensor. And this is an instrument, a camera, that we will use to lock on to a few stars every time we move to make a new observation. And it's this fine guidance sensor that the observatory will use to keep itself locked on a place in the sky when it takes the observations. So that's a critical piece, uh, functional part of the observatory. Eric, a little earlier, we were talking about that the light we see from stars at night actually can take a long time to reach Earth, some millions of light years away. So what we're seeing when we're seeing those objects, we're seeing them when the light first started traveling toward us. When we observe distant stars and objects, in essence, we're looking back in time. So how far do you think the JWST will look into the universe? How far back in time? Anytime we look into space or we see something from space, we are indeed seeing it as it was when the light left it. A famous example that many people know about is the sun. Light from the sun has taken eight minutes to get from the sun's surface to our eyes. So we're seeing the sun as it was eight minutes ago. The farther out you look, the farther away the object is, the longer that light has taken to get to our eyes. With Webb, we hope to see light that is somewhere between 13 and a half to 13.7 billion years old, meaning the light left those objects that long ago. Now, an interesting conundrum, if you will, is that we are looking for young galaxies. We're seeing them when they were young and just forming in the early universe. But of course, that light has taken 13 and a half billion years to get here. So we're using very old light to study very young objects. Eric, one thing that strikes me, knowing that the James Webb Space Telescope will be so far away, how will the telescope, and especially that delicate mirror system, be protected in space? When we built Webb, we knew that its mirrors and the sun shield would be exposed to the micrometeoroid environment that's out in space. And so the specifications that we put on the system, how good a quality must it be to do the science, we designed that assuming it would be bombarded over its prime mission, which is a five-year lifetime. So when it goes up, it's a little better 
than we need it to be so that after a long time in space, it gets to the point where it meets the requirements. There's really nothing we can do to avoid that environment. It's out there. We uh, swim in it just like anything would at L2, but we designed the system to be better than it needs to be at the start of life so that by the end of life, it's still as good as we need it to be. And finally, Eric, is there any idea of what might be JWST's first observational target once it's put into operation? We know that there'll be a program of a calibration, uh, which I mentioned earlier, or commissioning. And so we will look at a lot of targets to help make sure that it's functioning as we designed it. And once we're sure that it's functioning as we designed it, then we have a program that is going to look at uh, objects that would be interesting to scientists and the public. And there would be sort of our coming out party is the unveiling of these uh, objects. And we don't really talk about them ahead of time because we have several in mind that might work. But until we actually see which ones, you know, look the best, we don't uh, talk about them because we, we can't be sure. But uh, we're busy thinking what things might be beautiful and uh, really showcase uh, this telescope to the world. Because uh, one thing I would like to point out is that people all over the world can apply to use this telescope. Uh, once a year, they put out a call, and indeed, the uh, first uh, cycle has observers from all over the world who will be using it. So built by NASA, ESA, and CSA, but for use uh, by the planet because uh, the sky belongs to all of us. Eric Smith, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Rick. Uh, my pleasure. Look for these data next summer. That was Dr. Eric Smith, Ph.D. He is the program scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope Program at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. Dr. Smith joined us today via Microsoft Teams. And that's all the time we have for this science edition of Press Conference USA. If you'd like to learn more about the Webb Telescope, be sure to visit NASA's website, jwst.nasa.gov. This is Rick Pantaleo reminding you to be sure to join Carol Castillo next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.